This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 72, the 20th part of the 100-mile history. In this episode, I will tell the story of the Unisphere 100 held in Flushing Meadows Park in New York City in 1978 and 1979 when Don Ritchie of Scotland broke the 100-mile road world record. Wow, that's cool. I've got some news. Please help support this podcast. I've joined a partnership with Ultra Running Magazine, who is now sponsoring my podcast. I can offer a 25% discount on Ultra Running Magazine subscriptions and renewals. When you subscribe or renew, I will receive a commission, and I hope it will help me cover the many costs of producing these podcast episodes. Please support me and subscribe or renew your subscription to the magazine that, for 40 years, has been the glue connecting our sport. Go to ultrarunning.com slash ultrarunning-history. That's ultrarunning.com slash ultrarunning-history. The link will also be in the article on ultrarunninghistory.com. Thanks. Will do. Now to the story. Nineteen seventy-eight was a year when new road one hundred milers started to spring up across America, put on by independent race directors. Most of these races were available for the non-elite long-distance runners to give the epic distance a try. These one hundred milers were held in Hawaii, California, New Jersey, Maryland, and Missouri. One race in particular was established that would eventually become a national championship event the 100-miler at Flushing Meadows in Queens, New York. Going forward, 100-miler 24-hour races would be held at this venue into the 1990s. World and American records would be set on the grounds normally used by thousands of park visitors. Flushing Meadows Park was created in 1939 for the New York World's Fair and was also the venue for the 1964 World's Fair. 8,000 workmen bulldozed a million cubic yards of earth to bring four years of planning to an extravagant two-year life. The race's namesake, the Unisphere, was a massive spherical steel representation of the earth and was created as part of the 1964 World's Fair. It is 140 feet high and 120 feet in diameter and weighs 700,000 pounds. The rings around it represent the tracks of the first men to orbit the Earth, celebrating the beginning of the space age. There is the symbol of the fair, the great unisphere. And today it is even more meaningful than it was when it was built for the 1964 World's Fair because it's so special. The course for the 1978 100-mile race was a flat 2.27-mile loop around Meadow Lake. 
The race included a strong field and was an invitational race where participants needed to have previous ultramarathon experience. 22 qualified runners participated, although few had ever run the 100-mile distance before. Several of these runners deserve to be highlighted. Park Barner, the human metronome, was a computer programmer from Pennsylvania. He was the pre-race favorite for the Unisphere 100. Barner had served in the Army and was stationed in Germany during the late 1960s. While there, he watched a movie that inspired him to start running and set a goal to run a marathon. At the 1971 Boston Marathon, he met ultra-running legend Ted Corbett and asked him, How do you run 100 miles? Corbett's reply was, You just have to tell yourself to keep going. Barner, at the age of 27 in 1971, started running ultra-distance races and quickly became the greatest American ultra-runner of the 1970s. On August 16, 1975, Barner ran his first formal 100-mile race. It was held on a quarter-mile track at New York's Queensboro Community College. There were only seven starters, and all but Barner dropped out along the way. He finished with a time of 13 hours, 40 minutes, for a lifetime best. By 1978, Barner had finished 41 races of 50 miles or longer and won 19 of them. For more about Barner, see episode 51. Nick Marshall was from Camp Hill, Pennsylvania. He was an athlete in high school on the track team and the statistician for the basketball team. In his yearbook, he was quoted, I don't want to be an engineer. I'd rather be president. Marshall started running marathons in 1973. He realized that the longer the race, the better he could compete. He said, I was motivated by simply curiosity over a basic question, how far can I go? Marshall's introduction to ultras came in 1974 at the CNO Canal 100K on a point-to-point -point course from Washington, D.C. to Harper's Ferry. He finished in second place to Park Barner and was then hooked on ultras. By 1977, Marshall was one of only a handful of runners who had broken six hours for 100 miles on both the road and the track. In 1978, Marshall was ready to try his hand at 100 miles at Flushing Meadows. Kahit Yeder was an immigrant from Turkey who lived in the Bronx. He claimed that in his native Turkey, he had been a champion marathoner with a best time of 2 hours 14 minutes and had run more than 200 marathons in 43 countries. He said while preparing for the Olympics at age 23, he had become severely injured in an automobile accident and for the next 16 years put running aside and immigrated to America to start a new life as a chef and a bus driver. He started running marathons again in 1976 and gained popularity in the Bronx and started to organize races in 1977. Later he founded a running club among his admirers called Yeeters Pacers. His first ultra was the 1977 Metropolitan 50 mile race in Central Park. Sadly, Yeeters running career results have been shrouded in doubt. No evidence has been found about his running exploits in Turkey, and they are likely to be fiction. He had claimed that he had been born in 1935, 
but it appears that he was actually born in 1940 and thus claimed master's records were undeserved. In the 1980s, he was witness cutting courses to improve his times. The controversy surrounding him was very public, and it was believed that he used tactics of faking laps at night on loop courses similar to an infamous ultra-runner of recent years. Clearly, Yeeter had elite ultra-running skills, but there has been doubt about what he actually accomplished fairly. In 1978, at the age of 38, he was ready to attempt his first 100-miler at Unisphere 100. Rich Inamorado was an accountant from Woodland, New York. In his high school yearbook, it was written about him, With an ability to talk and an interest in sports, Rich will become an excellent sports announcer. He began running while attending Parsons College in Iowa, where he also played soccer. After graduating in 1970, he obtained an employment at a Manhattan publishing house and started running marathons in the city and at Boston. He started running ultras in 1976, and that year received national fame by running from Maine to Florida in 71 days. He was good friends with Ted Corbett, and later founded the Broadway Ultra Society. He would become a running legend for decades in New York City. The historic 1978 Unisphere 100 started at 4 p.m., on June 23, 1978, with 22 starters. To run the full 100 miles, runners would run 44 loops. Barner ran alone from the start, apart from the others, taking off uncharacteristically fast, Marshall reported. By nightfall and 50 miles, he lapped everyone else at least once with a 5.59 50-mile split. Yeeter, Marshall, and others were in a second pack, that came through at about 6.40. It was a very fast group of frontrunners making circuits around the lake. During the night, the heat took its toll on everyone. The officials placed candles and bags around the lake at locations where there weren't street lamps. There was no fence around the lake. We worried that when runners lost concentration about 60 miles, they might fall into the lake. One runner explained that he hallucinated. I saw all kinds of things on the lake. I saw the War of 1812. I saw Admiral Perry there. Jim Shapiro was running and recalled, I remembered how much it meant to come around out of the ghostly spell of two miles of running past empty park benches, out among the trees with the branches that made you duck, the bright moon, the smell of the water, and finally after coming up over a small bridge, seeing the first slice of lamplight from the timer's table gleaming ahead like a welcoming beacon. I always ran a little smoother and faster then. Barner maintained a nine-minute lead at mile 64. Inamorado stopped after 70 miles because he was badly hallucinating. By mile 75, Barner was in full command about a half hour ahead of the next competitors, who were closely bunched. Yeeter and Marshall moved into the top three. Barner cruised to the win with a time of 13 hours 57 minutes. His only complaint was that the course was too flat. He proclaimed, I would have preferred a few hills. Yeeter finished second with 14 hours 30 minutes, and Marshall came in third with 14 hours 37 minutes. 
These were the top three fastest American 100-mile performances for the year. The first time three sub-15-hour finishes occurred in an American 100-mile race. In total, seven finished among the 22 100-mile rookie starters. Jim Shapiro wrote, There was a lot of satisfaction and excitement about the race in the East Coast Ultra World, and eventually the wires were abuzz again with plans for the second annual version. The second annual 100-mile race at Flushing Meadows was held again in June 1979 with returning champion Park Barner. Because of the great attention it was receiving, interested entrants were carefully screened. That year, Inner Morado served as the co-race director for the New York Road Runners event. He explained about the requirement to have previously run an ultra and mentioned that 12 runners were rejected. If Bill Rogers applied, I'd have to reject him. There's only one person in the race who hasn't run 50 miles before. This is not a carnival. It was said, Qualifying times were established to weed out any who might hurt themselves by trying something that they weren't ready for, or who hadn't the potential to finish within the time limit. One letter of rejection did not reach a man from Germany in time who flew in to run. Anyone that serious deserved a chance, and as it turned out, the runner acquitted himself honorably. Headlining the race that year was the 100-mile track world record holder, Don Ritchie from Scotland. See episode 72. In all, there were 27 starters. That ultra gang, mostly members of the East Coast Division, had taken time off from nursing bruised and injured bodies and driven in from the different boroughs of New York and from neighboring states. A few local runners came in early from work for the 7 p.m. start and rode out on the subway, clutching their athletic carry bags. Frank Bozanich, who had run with Richie at the Crystal Palace two years earlier, see episode 72, was also in the field. He had flown 3,000 miles from California to run. On the plane, some passengers asked why he was flying to New York. His reply? I'm just going there to run 100 miles. They couldn't believe it. They probably thought I was really crazy. Richie arrived from Scotland two days before that big race and was picked up at the airport by a running club official. He was fascinated with his ride in a yellow cab. It was quite a thrill to see the New York skyline for the first time and the cab driver gave a commentary as he drove along. He shared a hotel with Bozanich and the next day ran 8.5 miles in Central Park. He said, That was quite an experience as there were thousands of other runners of all shapes and sizes doing the same thing. The next day he rested and walked around Manhattan. In addition to Ritchie, Barner, and Bozanich, there were several other future ultra-running legends in the field. Richard Lyon Caldwell of Texas was permitted to run even though he had only one ultra-finish on his resume. He acquired the nickname Lyon as a student at Kansas State University when he was playing with some young children and began roaring to entertain them. In 1978, the year before he graduated, he ran his first ultra, the Houston 50-miler, which he won in a lifetime best of 5 hours 36 minutes, the sixth fastest time in America that year. Certainly, he was qualified to run his first 100-miler. Future Ultra Running Hall of Famer Stu Middleman 
A college professor from New York City was also in the qualified field. When he was in high school, he ran a 439 mile. In 1977, he ran up Flagstaff Mountain in Boulder, Colorado, and fell in love with running. At his first Boston Marathon, he ran in a gutter in efforts to pass runners and twisted his ankle terribly. Ouch! <laughs> Disappointed but determined, Middleman tied ice around his swollen ankle and vowed not to drop out of the race. He finished in four hours and three minutes. He ran his first ultra in 1978, running 6 hours, 13 minutes in the Metropolitan 50-miler in Central Park, New York, placing 8. That qualified him to run in his first 100-miler. Dave Obelkovich was a music teacher from New York City and started running road races around 1973. He became interested in running in 1972 when he watched coverage of the New York City Marathon on a morning TV show. On a Saturday in 1976, he looked out the window and was surprised to see a race going on. It was a 50K. He went out and ran one loop with them, and the next year, in 1977, he started running ultras. One of his first ultras was the 1978 Metropolitan 50 in Central Park. He finished 19th overall with 6 hours 43 minutes, which qualified him for the Unisphere 100. Jack Bristol was an electro-mechanical technician from Marbledale, Connecticut. In high school, he ran for the cross-country team in the 1960s and then attended college at Ohio State. Out of college, Bristol started running ultras in 1971, always finishing high in the results. In 1974, he co-founded the Lake Waramog 50-miler and 100K in Connecticut, which became one of the most competitive American ultras during the 1970s. In 1974, when aged 25, Bristol ran the prestigious London to Brighton 52-miler in England, finishing 10th in a very impressive 5 hours 44 minutes. By 1979, he and Park Barner were probably the most experienced American ultra-runners in the Ultrasphere 100 field. It would be his first attempt to run 100 miles. The race started at 7 p.m at the abandoned 1939 World's Fair Amphitheater in Flushing Meadows Park. Richie stormed into the lead, running a six-minute mile pace. Bozanich hung with him for three laps, but then it turned into a one-man race as Bozanich fell behind. He did his best to stay close, but was already 12 minutes behind when Richie, bothered by the 80-degree heat, hit the marathon mark at two hours, 40 minutes. Richie commented on the gnats around the lake. An unexpected problem was hordes of flies, which appeared in black clouds as the sun went down. I was getting protein instead of carbohydrates. Jim Shapiro crewed for Richie and said, I waited on him for each lap, knowing by the large digital clock almost to the second when to expect him to appear around the bend of the path. Cardboard cards with each runner's number were dangled from a large clothesline suspended between the immense concrete pillars. Beneath were stashed rucksacks, shopping bags, and ice coolers that held extra changes of clothes and running shoes. Bottles of soda and other elaborate concoctions were ducked in the ice. The sting incense of Bengay hung in the air. Boo, you stink! 
The officials were under the direction of legendary 67-year-old Joel Kleinerman. He helped establish the New York Road Runners Club and promoted long-distance running in the New York City area more than anyone at the time. Watchers under Kleinerman's directions would call out the numbers of approaching runners so that the timekeepers for the runners could bend plot the progress of their runners. Over immense swashes of cardboard art paper with carefully ruled off squares, at one point, one of the officials asked Richie how he felt and he replied, it's just survival. He usually never smiled or acknowledged the yells or applause as he ran beneath the night lights that were set up for the officials and timekeepers. Shapiro always had two drinks ready for Richie. One was ERG, a commercial electrolyte replacement drink. The other was a special mix of long-chain glucose polymers, which would rapidly be absorbed from his gut to his bloodstream. He would alternate the drink each lap. Shapiro said, I fell into stride as he ran through and handed off the bottle from his right side. Richie wasn't inclined to say much when he was working hard. He chugged from the bottle and returned it with monotonous regularity at a point about 400 yards down the pathway. A wet sponge to dap his high balding brow, a swab on his thighs, a slap at the thick clouds of gnats which drifted like black mist out of the tall grass surrounding the pond, and with a word of encouragement from me, he was off, arms pumping, shoulders hunching more and more deeply as with each succeeding lap, the familiar weariness set in. Richie ran 50 miles in 5 hours 23 minutes and had lapped everyone at least 3 times. His feet had become very painful from the hot road, starting at about mile 20. Doubts had come into his mind if he could finish the race. He stopped to tape over a blister, but the painful foot would cause him to limp noticeably at times. He said, My feet became very painful, but they lost feeling at about 50 miles, which was a blessing, and my legs felt fine. Bozanich dropped out after 50 miles with cramping hamstrings. Ah! Uh, ah! Uh, ah! Uh. Lion Caldwell was in second place, and cruised through the 50-mile mark at 6 hours 20 minutes. Richie kept extending his lead and reached 100k in a blazing 6 hours 49 minutes. The scene during the night with crews and runners was eerie and was said to resemble the campfire grounds of a tribe of gypsies. Tucked off in the shadows, away from the string of lights, a few exhausted runners laid curled up like children with their hands slipped between their knees. Here and there, small groups sat on the steps chatting about the race. An occasional stranger would wander in out of the night, drawn like a moth by the brightly lit scene, and wondered aloud, A hundred miles? Are you kidding? Gee! And stay an hour or so. Richie thought the nightlife was very odd. There were people in the park all night doing various things, having parties and entertaining each other. As dawn arrived, after about 10 hours, Richie had 20 miles to go and felt new energy as the sun hit him. 
briefly the balding, bearded Scott slowed to a bit over eight-minute mile pace on numbed feet, only to rally impressively the last 16 miles and set a world 100-mile world record of 11 hours, 51 minutes, and 12 seconds. Richie now held the 100-mile world record on both the track and road. His road record was 20 minutes slower because of the hot weather, but he had broken Ron Hopcroft's 1958 uncertified time on the box road by 27 minutes. See episode 61. After he finished, Richie could barely walk and was carried to a chair so he could dunk his feet in ice water. I soaked my feet for a half an hour in a bucket of cold water to extract some of the heat from them. It was reported. A small awestruck crowd gathered around just to stare, and the man whose mother has to pry out of him the news that he's won a race suddenly found himself a minor celebrity. Surprisingly, the press was there with cameras and notepads, including the New York Times. He was even featured in Sports Illustrated's Faces in the Crowd and received a trophy from them. After the feet soak, Richie was awarded the Ted Corbett Trophy by the legend himself. Richie said, It was a pleasure for me to meet Ted. The other runners continued, The survivors who came in for refueling had various odd requests, an aspirin, a change of socks, a calf massage, and wanting sometimes some words of advice or cheer. There was a little humor and something affecting in seeing such intense knots of civilians clustered about the soldiers with their single-minded, almost childlike absorption in their effort. Caldwell continued on and finished in an impressive 13 hours, 33 minutes, the certified American road 100-mile best at that time. Barner had run sluggish because he had run an unofficial 24-hour world record of 162 miles just two weeks earlier at Huntington Beach, California. As people observed Barner during laps in Flushing Meadows, they said that he lacked his usual competitiveness and was more mellow than usual, chatting with his crew or runners as he passed. Park is talkative tonight. After 24 miles, he was in 12th place, but Barner moved up steadily to finish third in 14 hours, 14 minutes. Middleman finished 20 minutes later in 14 hours, 34 minutes. Obelkovich finished in 15 hours, 15 minutes. Bristol came in sixth at 16 hours, 24 minutes. In total, 11 of the 27 finished, all under 20 hours. Shapiro closed up the event with these comments. The pennants, the digital clock, and the plastic buckets that had been used for water were stored away in car trunks. The pathway around the pond was no longer a magic circle, and ordinary strollers promenaded over the asphalt. The once orange moon and the night still hung overhead, pale and sobered, not hinting of how wild a night it had witnessed. All around the city, the few dozen runners went to sleep, scattered again until the call of the next enterprise. Stay tuned for more 100 Mile History. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances. <laughs>